Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm in Shea Hart this morning with Peter Hart, uh, surrounded by uh, great war memorabilia and uh, washing. There's a lot of washing in this room, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I am busy about. Sorry, it, when though. I say washing, I don't mean great war washing. It's not Gary. Gary, the punters want to know what we're doing, not what we're surrounded. I've been there since the uh, the Great War. Oh, you side patient. The tea towel <laughs> battle of 1915. Anyway, today is the third third in our mini series, and probably last. What were the others called, Gary? Uh, the other uh, one was called the Middle Years, I seem to recall, and I presume the first one was called the Early Years. Well, I think Majuba Hill, I think we just called that one, but yeah. But this is Ian Hamilton and the Gallipoli landings of the 25th of April 1915, although we do touch on some of the other actions. Is there going to be a change in tone, do you think, in our approach to Hamilton? I might speak like this. That would be very amusing. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think... Possibly not. I think uh, the whole point of this is to show how he he grew and developed into the uh, uh, the officer that uh, he was at the time of the Gallipoli landings. And then the wheels fell off. <laughs> and, and yeah, and perhaps explain subsequently some of the reasons for those. Failures. Yeah, that's what we're interested in, isn't it? So, uh, so we better we'd better look at what happened to him after the Boer War, hadn't he? He, he had a stream of uh, senior appointments after being chief of staff to Lord Kitchener at the back. Back end of the Boer War. So, what what did he do, Gary? Oh, he was the Quartermaster General from 1903 to 4. Blimey. He was a British observer during the Russo-Japanese War of 1904. He wrote uh, quite interesting books about that. And by that time, he'd reached a rank of Lieutenant General. And he was Sir Ian Hamilton, Gary, Gary, Ooh, Gary. So, he must have done something right You're then. not Sir Gary, are you? No, he was uh, uh, the... He, he had the Southern Command from 1905 to 1909. Very important. Uh, Adjutant General, very important position, 1909 to 1910. And then, funnily enough, not quite so important a position in some ways. Uh, what was that? What was his last one? Well, he was the uh, Mediterranean Command and Inspector General of Overseas Forces from 1910 to 1914, which was headquartered in Malta, where he spent uh, a lot of his time. And, uh, quite nice too, I think. Lovely. Uh, now, uh, he, um, do you think the war had come a little too late for him? I presume you're referring to his age. He was 61 by then. Oh, so he was 61. 
No, nearly. Um, and uh, yeah, although he was appointed as commander of the home forces, he was probably sidelined from the action in 1914. But then uh, a great uh, uh, sort of general uh, captain on a st- white steed rescues him. Although the word rescues isn't probably the right word. Who comes to his rescue? Well, Kitchener, he recalls him from the wilderness, as it were, trusting in his old chief of staff and wanting to capitalise on his relatively recent experience in the Mediterranean theatre. Oh, so he recalls him to the wilderness to do what? Well, he's going to command the amorphous force that was gathering in the Middle East, which would become known as the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, which we'll probably refer to as the MEF from this point. MEF. On the 12th of March, 1915. Now, he was appointed, I want to make it clear, Lord Kitchener's Secretary of State for War, so he can do this. He also has a habit of acting as if he's Commander-in-Chief of the British Army, which is not helpful, really. Now, um, so Hamilton is sent out, and, and the after the naval attempts fail on uh, March the 18th, Hamilton realises that it's all down to him and the MEF. And and what does he write? Uh, one thing about Hamilton is you can't trust a word he bloody says uh, in some senses from now on because he's he's writing in a his so-called diary, which uh, which was written after the events. Uh, it was written after the war. So we, we we ought to be aware of that before we go on. And I'd also like to make the point that the 18th of March is a date that is much celebrated in the Gallipoli area. When you're there, you, you do see all the time. reference to it all, all over the place. All over the place. And this is what General Sir Ian Hamilton of the headquarters MEF says. I'm being most reluctantly driven to the conclusion that the Straits are not likely to be forced by battleships as at one time seemed probable... And that, if my troops are to take part, it will not take the subsidiary form anticipated. The army's part will be more than mere landings of parties to destroy forts. It must be a deliberate and progressive military operation carried out at full strength so as to open a passage for the Navy. So entirely different from what it... I mean, this is mission creep on a large scale. Uh, there was a, a mass of strategic confusion in the War Council back in sunny London, uh, and uh, there's already a sizable number of troops arriving in the eastern Mediterranean, and they're going to be the, who Hamilton has under command to support the Navy. Uh, uh, the, the, the Navy... Would only, they would, why would the Navy, what, what would make the Navy try again after the failure of 18th of March? There's, there's one thing that, 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 that will allow, make them try again. What's that? Well, they, it, they would only do it once the army had seized the Khalid Bahia Plateau. You've been on there. At the back of the European forts, yes. How is it known locally? Big bastard. Because? It's big. Mm. It's a bastard to think of taking it. Now, it was a bit of a postponement, if you like, waiting for that to happen, but it wasn't a cancellation. No one considered that the army might fail, uh, yet there were plenty of professional observers who were already seriously concerned, especially amongst the high command watching in askance oh, from the Western Front. And this is one of our favourites, General Sir Douglas Haig, Headquarters First Army. Colonel Hankey, Secretary of the Committee of Imperial Defence, arrived to see me. He's over in France for three days. He states Lord Kitchener is more hopeful as regards the ammunition. That's 
bit irrelevant. But as to the Dardanelles operations, I asked why the naval bombardment had taken place before the military part of the expedition was on the spot to take advantage of it and cooperate. He quite agreed with my view and said the operation had been run like an American cinema show, meaning the wide advertisement which had been given to every step long before anything had actually been done. And and that, that this is quite a widespread view from senior commanders on the Western Front. Uh, so, so well, we better look at who these troops were. Who did Hamilton have? Um, they come from all over the world, don't they? Uh, and uh, are they thrown together with lots of careful planning and forethought? Well, I think the clue is in the word you just used there, thrown together. <laughs> so he had two French divisions who were well-trained, good artillery, and, most importantly, plenty of ammunition. Uh, next up, I think we'll have that. Well, my favourites, the Royal Naval Division, uh, badly trained, <laughs> no practical experience other than a, 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 an absolute disaster at Antwerp, and no artillery. So they're not really a division. They're Churchill's favourites. There's nothing wrong with the men. We'll, we'll keep uh, it. They had potential, not military efficiency. Who else, Gary? Who else? Well, the 29th Division who were scraped up from around scraped the Empire. Up. That's a bit harsh, Gary. <laughs> well, they, they'd never trained as a division. So no. so how would you describe it? Uh, I, I'd, I'd say scraped up. And uh, they are not the elite fighting force people think they are. They do perform well, but they are not a division again because they haven't trained together. They've got no... Uh, <sighs> right, who else? Though, according to the uh, their own country, this is the only troops who were there. Who are they? Well, the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, good material, but little training and absolutely no experience. And then lurking in the background, uh, there's uh, the Indian Brigade, which are fine troops, and we'll come back to them in another podcast. But also there was the 42nd East Lancashire Division. Where did they come from, Gary? Uh, Generic Northern. Generic Northern, yeah. Uh, uh, they're TA. T- sorry, they're not TA. They're well, the ter- Territorial Force. Territorial Force. Uh, what's their training like? Well, inadequate, I think, is how we Experience? would describe it. Uh, inadequate. Yeah. Uh, now, take it as a whole, a lot of these formations are, are not very well trained. Uh, they've got very little experience of working together in higher military formations, you know. So they're, they're not used to working in uh, brigades or division. They're, they're just not. They're short of artillery. And for the British, ammunition is terrifyingly scarce. It's farcical. What about the senior commanders, Gary? Well, how would what? Well, most of them are inexperienced in modern warfare. Their staff had little practical experience, which, you know, would have enabled them to have any chance of dealing with the appalling administrative communication and logistical problems that would face them on a daily basis. Well, I think you're you're saying this is a disaster waiting to happen. This was a disaster waiting to happen. And who would deliver that disaster? Hamilton. (laughs) I'm afraid so. Uh, And we've got another quote for you as Hamilton. Uh, And uh, what does uh, headquarters MEF, what does Hamilton say? At once we turned our faces to the land scheme. Very sketchy. How could it be otherwise? On the German system, plans for a landing on Gallipoli would have been in my pocket up to date and worked out to a ball cartridge and a pail of water. By the British system, I've been obliged to concoct my own plans in a brace of shakes almost under fire. Strategically and tactically, our method may have its merits, 
for though it piles everything onto one man, the commander, yet he is the chap who has got to see it through. But in matters of supply, transport, organisation and administration, our way is the way of Coney Hatch. Now, for those that don't know, Coney Hatch was a psychiatric hospital in Barnet, near near where we are Walked now. Walked past it many times, and I've actually been in the... It's had then the longest corridor in the world, or in Europe. So and how I, would you describe uh, General Sir Ian Hamilton's comments there, Pete? Uh, utter bollocks. Um, it, 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 this is... The, I'm sorry, because Hamilton does spin off into not quite reliable uh, witness. Uh, we'll come to this time and time again. The question of forcing the Dardanelles or landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula was not new. It had been discussed and dissected time and time again over the last 50 years. Uh, can you? There's one interesting fact which there are memories of on the peninsula. What's that? Well, that the uh, British and French forces had occupied the peninsula for a time in both the 1850s and 1870s. Now, a series of papers and reports about the possibility of a naval attack with or without military support uh, support on the Dardanelles had been carried out for the War Office in 1906. And what was their result? Well, <laughs> don't touch it with a barge pole. Yeah, and, and it, it's, they'd revisited this. And it was, It's just... it. It's not really... Um, possible uh, and, and and this is what the, the problem is with Gallipoli you you'd have to have the entire BEF there to, to make any chance uh, now what's the prevailing culture military culture why is it that Hamilton we have to have some sympathy for Hamilton why is that well because uh, I think what you're alluding to is that the uh, the military culture was such that Hamilton couldn't make what seems to be an entirely reasonable demand for a set of fully evaluated combined operational plans conditional to him accepting command of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force. No, he can't, can he? He's hamstrung by his... Uh, his to be honest, he's got a sort of subservient relationship with Kitchener. Uh, and he's not the sort of man to kick up too much fuss. Well, I'm going to make a condition on that. He's not the man to kick up too much of a fuss at the time. He never stopped kicking up a fuss afterwards. Uh, well, by which time it was too late. And uh, now you're going to tell us what General Sir Ian Hamilton says. Where are your well-thought-out schemes for an amphibious attack on Constantinople? Not a sign. Braithwaite set to work in the intelligence branch at once. But beyond the ordinary textbooks, these pigeonholes were drawn blank. The Dardanelles and Bosphorus might be on the moon for all the military information I've got to go upon. One textbook and one book of traveller's tales don't take long to master. Now, there's the rub, because he's lying. And uh, the, the maps in his possession that they got issued with were not good, but they were adequate for the purposes of operational planning. Uh, what, what do I mean by this? What do I mean by this? Well, he had, for example, a 1 to 63,360 map, uh, which had been prepared in 1908. It was based on an older 1 to 50,000 map from a French survey made during the Crimean War in 1854. Additional information had been incorporated to create a 1 in 40,000 enlargement in March 1915. Now, for over a 100 years, naval hydrographers... That's easy for you to say. uh, It's easy for me to say. They're people who mapped the watery bits. 
consular officials, spies, we call them, Gary. Uh, military and naval attaches, spies. spies. <laughs> Intelligence officer, spies. definitely spies. Uh, even civilian yachtsmen, spies. Uh, had all channeled intelligence by open or clandestine, clandestine, that's also easy for me to say, back to Britain. Uh, but this is a great example of one of them. What's that? Well, one naval officer had even prepared a four-inch-to-the-mile map with accompanying comprehensive notes covering the direct route between Gabatepe and the Kilid Bahia Plateau in 1876. Now, what's interesting is a lot of these reports that were funnelled into the War Office settle on the Gabatepe sector as the best landing spot because it's got roads leading directly to Maidos and Kilid Bahia. And it's that we all know where Gabatepe is. It's uh, to the uh, south of the ultimate Anzac landing site. Uh, but it's also interesting to where the Camatel, just near there, the Camatel, where we go and stay on our holiday. And Midas is, is modern Echeba, is it yes, not? Yes, 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 that's right. Now, these various reports were collated as secret documents by naval intelligence in 1908 and the War Office in 1909. Um, but they're regular updates. They, they never stop gathering intelligence. Uh, they, and indeed, the, uh, there was a, a consular official in uh, uh, Chanakli never stopped. Now, uh, we, we want to pay tribute to two, two authors who've very much done the groundwork for our, our blatherings here, haven't they? Who are they? Well, nearly all of the material's been convincing, convincingly argued by Peter Chasseau and Peter Doyle in their book Grasping Gallipoli, Terrain, Maps and Failure at the Dardanelles, 1915. Now, and they make it clear what's available to Hamilton and staff, and they make it clear that he is lying, uh, I'm sorry to say. Uh, and if he didn't have it in London, uh, he had it as soon as he got out there. Uh, well, certainly early briefing meetings in the theatre. There was also the opportunity for personal observations carried out from the sea, which augmented by a series of beautifully drawn panoramas of landing sites, which were then, in turn, duplicated and made available. Yeah, a lot of those young sailors had a, a very artistic bent. Finally, there were the efforts of three squadron, Royal Naval Air Service, who were able to use their aircraft to conduct a series of pioneering photographic reconnaissance missions, which recorded with considerable accuracy the locations and ongoing changes in the Turkish defences. So what you're saying, Gaza, is that Whatever Hamilton <laughs> might claim, the information he required in making his plans was available. Uh, the question is, how did he use it? Now, uh, well, what, what would you say that there's, there's rules of war, isn't there? There's uh, like gathering the main theatre, uh, you know, concentrate on the main theatre war against the main enemy, various things. There's one of the big, important principle of war. What's that? That they break well, time and, and Hague referred to it. What is it? The element of surprise. There'd be a real. That was a surprise to me. <laughs> there'd be a real problem in securing any kind of, of surprise. The desired objective of securing the, and the and forcing the Dardanelles narrows was plain for all to see. And it had been since the bombardment on the uh, in early November. It's 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 just ridiculous what they'd done. However, so strategic surprise is not possible. What is still possible? Tactical surprise to some extent but only if they came up with a plan that could isolate the uh, disparate elements of the Turkish forces. Hamilton, therefore, sought to confuse the Turkish commander. And uh, I'm going to tell you what General Sir Ian Hamilton says. The first and foremost step towards a victorious landing was to upset the equilibrium of Liman van Saunders, the uh, enemy commander of the Fifth Army, 
I must try to move so that he should be unable to concentrate either his mind or his men against us. Now, he's got some advantages in doing this, uh, none of which he took advantage of, I have to say. Um, what, what are these advantages? Well, the first one is that the Dardanelles splits the Turkish forces. So they've got some in Asia and some in Europe. That's one thing. What other, uh, what other uh, advantages do we have? Well, the marching distance between Helis at the tip of the peninsula and Bulea... That's at the neck of the peninsula. ...was measured in days rather than hours. There's something else as well. What, what else might delay the Turkish troops? Well, they, they, they could be delayed by the rough ground, which we know fairly, fairly well how rough that is in, in modern equipment, when marching to the landing sites. A clear sites. and well-defined path has always been my route. <laughs> it just ends in... Disaster mm. and prickly bushes. Now, right, uh, sorry, I may have got distracted by personal memories there. Now, um, so there's a potential for uh, Hamilton to cause uh, Liman. Uh, who? Uh, Liman von who? A Liman. He was a personal friend of mine. Um, oh. Liman von Sanders. Very great difficulty. Uh, but he's also, there's other, so that's one thing. But uh, Sanders, uh, Hamilton, Hamilton has got other things on his mind. Well, well there's got a, a He's got to consider the trade-off between unexpected landing points and the best locations to allow rapid advance to secure the narrows. So if you land at the best landing beaches or close to the objectives, you're going to find the Turks are ready and waiting. So it's better, but the Turks are there. Uh, The less obvious indirect route, that might allow the troops to get ashore safe and sound, but the inappropriate nature of the beach... Think Y Beach. Y Beach comes in immediately to mind. The distance to be travelled or the rough terrain would give ample time for the Turkish reserves to block the approach to the real objectives. Right. Now, the, the, the planning process starts late, not entirely Hamilton's fault, but, uh, you know, uh, and one decision had been provisionally taken by Braithwaite, uh, by Birdwood, sorry, who... Uh, uh, was really, uh, that's General Sir William Birdwood, who was commanding the Anzac Corps. It was swiftly endorsed by Hamilton and his Chief of Staff, Major General Walter Braithwaite. Uh, and what are they going to issue? What are they not going to touch with their barge pole? What are they not going to do? They're not going to land at Belair. But surely that's every amateur strategist and everybody who goes to Gallipoli when you're going, that they all say, why didn't they land here? It would have been great. Yeah, and indeed, it was Liman van Saunders' main fear. It was. But as far as Hamilton was concerned, there's a series of fatal flaws in this uh, superficially attractive idea. Are you idea. saying I'm superficial? No, I'm saying you're super. Thanks, mate. Uh, well, let's go through. What? Uh, if they landed at Belair, uh, uh, they'd, they'd be on the northern, or if you like, Constant. We will put a map up, <laughs> probably. Probably after you listen to this, and about two days later, the map will appear. Uh, they land on the northern or Constantinople side of the Turkish defence lines across the Isthmus. Where are those lines come from? You've, you've seen some of them. Yeah, yeah, and the, the trenches and forts, they date back to the Crimean War. But they had been recently modernised and improved by the Turks. And we visited one of those forts. It's fantastic, isn't it? Uh, and uh, it, 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 the guns aren't there anymore, but the fort is. It's fabulous, great place to visit. Um, that, but well, there's something else. If you land at Belair, so you land on this little narrow three-mile isthmus, uh, and there's a big load of lines between you and your target, what else is there? 
Well, you're, you're vulnerable to attack from both sides. So there's Turks on the southern. Uh, the, the, the Turks will lie to the south, but there's also Turks to the north. Yeah. Now, there were two Turkish divisions specifically placed there by Limon von Saunders to thwart any such landing. Uh, and uh, how many uh, how many uh, b- battalions were facing the Brit- oh, yeah, the British 29th Division at Hellas? Well, have a listen and you'll find. Down there, then think two divisions. So there's two whole Turkish divisions. Right. Now, the occupation of these lines, it wouldn't cut off Turkish supplies and reinforcements to the peninsula as their sea routes would be completely unaffected. Now... Uh, the other thing is uh, is geography. Uh, is Belair next to the Narrows? It's nowhere near, is it, no, really? It's 15, it. 20 miles away. Uh, that's a guesstimate, so don't get your bloody measuring tapes out. Please do. <laughs> the increased distance from their only feasible base at Mudros would have stretched an already strained line of communications to breaking point. Now, they also decided not to do... Uh, uh, the, so they're not going to land at Belair. They're also not going to land on the Asiatic coast. Uh they do make a small landing, but we'll come back to that. Why, why are they not make a serious assault in Asia? And this is quite controversial again. Uh, so what, what are the ranges of opinions about a landing in Asia? Well, some thought that the openness of the ground would give the relative freedom of manoeuvre impossible on the cramped Gallipoli Peninsula. However, others feared that the expeditionary force would be exposed to full-scale continental operations once the Turks mobilised their forces. As the Allies advanced towards Chanak and and their objectives, they would be leaving all of their right flank and communications terribly exposed to count. Yeah, because it's it's the big it's the big country. It's It's wide open, and so the the Turks can they've got more troops available. Uh, Anyway, Uh, as if this not as not enough, somebody else had said they weren't landing Asia. Who was that, and why is that important? Well, Kitchener said it was not to be. Attempted, and as we've said, he's not going to argue with him. And at that point, we'll take a short break to think about what we've just heard. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome back. Now, so we're not landing at we're Belair. not landing at Belair, and we're not landing on the uh, Asiatic side. Where, where are we going to land? So it leaves the Gallipoli Peninsula itself. Now you look at your map, any map of Gallipoli. What does that reveal? It's that the domination of the Straits meant that the Khalid Bahia Plateau, immediately behind the European forts, would have to be secured to achieve Hamilton's aims. So that is the main objective: the Khalid Bahia Plateau. Right. Now, there's several obvious-looking landing beaches, but they all had some disadvantages. Well, I can think of one straight away. Can you guess what I'm thinking of? Suvla Bay? Yep, Suvla Bay. Lightly guarded, uh, but there's a problem. What's the problem of, of landing at Suvla Bay? Well, the line of march would either cross or pass either side of the Sari Bayer range, which rises to 971 feet. We've often discovered the height of that. Remember when you thought it was nine Meters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, Hamilton knew from the aerial observation uh, that there was uh, strong Turkish forces in the Begali area. That's behind Sari Bayer, as you know. We've been there. Uh, that's where... Uh, uh, Ataturk's headquarters was as well. Uh, that's a bit of a diversion. Anyway, uh, they'd have an excellent chance of intercepting and holding up the British well before they got to Kilid Bahia because Suvla Bay is nowhere near Kilid Bahia. Right. So, so that, that's, uh, that's, that's, there's a, well, so that's put aside. There's other beaches. Where are the other beaches? Well, the area, uh, the area of Gabatepe. Either side. Yeah. Although to secure the beachhead, the covering force would still have to get a measure of control on the, uh, Sari Bayer range. They would have every opportunity to do so before the Turkish reserves could arrive. So this is where. Hamilton decides to strike. He's going to make a night landing of the Anzac Corps on the beaches north of Gabatepe, which were not yet well defended. They're, they're not. Um, and the main force would then push on to say, to seize the conical shaped Maltepe hill feature, uh, before next day launching an attack to, to, to capture Kilibah here uh, itself in association with the. So not much then. <laughs> not much. And uh, I'm going to be General Sir Ian Hamilton, who discusses this aspect of the plan. He said, I, I should like to, uh, I would like to land my held force in one, like a hammer stroke, with the fullest violence of its mass effect, as close as I can to my objective, the Kilid Bahia Plateau. But apart from lack of small craft, the thing cannot be done. The beach space is so cramped that the men and their stores could not be put ashore. I have to separate my forces and the effect of momentum, which cannot be produced by cohesion, must be reproduced by the simultaneous nature of the movement. Yeah, I'm going to repeat what you said earlier. That is utter bollocks. It's utter bollocks. It's a fatal decision. Uh, There's no logic to it. There's many, many beaches stretching either side of Gabatepe down to, and they could have landed down towards Suvla, all those beaches, and they could have landed there. The covering force would land, uh, round Gabatepe, perhaps north of Gabatepe, but then the other, the rest of the, 
uh, the divisions could have landed on the Suvla beach and then moved to their support. Um, uh, it, it, the, the, most people who thought about it now think that the only way, if, and if there was a chance of success, the only chance of sex, success or sex would have been to, uh, to land as a, as a concerted push on Khalid Bahir, a real hammer stroke, smash through, uh, straight to it. It's not far from uh, Gaba Tepe, uh, the beaches either side, to Khalid Bahir. You can see it, which is why we call it a big bastard. I would point out, it still looks like a wall across the horizon. Yeah. Now, to make matters worse, Hamilton resolved to divide his forces and make a series of supposedly coordinated landings all around the hellish tip of the peninsula. But as we've said on numerous occasions... Sorry, I'm sighing. They're, they're not able to support each other, so they're not coordinated at all. No, they're not. Uh, and, and, and it's just bloody stupid. Um, the, the, again, there are a couple of the mainlanded beaches where, where they were considered... Fit, they were well guarded by the Turks. Uh, but the idea was, although they were defended, the, the what were they relying on? They weren't relying on the army for this. What were they relying on? No, the Navy would be able to pour in supporting fire from all three sides, pounding the Turks into a state of submission. The main beaches were identified as... V Beach, that's in front of the Sedelbar Forton village, and that was well defended. W Beach, which is just further around the Hellis Cape. And that was well defended. And then Hamilton goes into the realms of bloody fantasy. I'm sorry to swear. I very rarely swear, as you know, Gary. Uh, he, pro- he has a lot of, uh, let's go, surprise. Can you imagine me doing those thingies in me- with my hand? Uh, subsidiary flanking assaults at less likely landing points, mainly because they're not bloody beaches at all. Uh, what's the first of them? X Beach. Uh, which is uh, towards the northeast of W Beach. A bit further round, isn't and it's, it? And it's not really a beach at all. There's a sort of artillery road coming up from... Um, I think that was there then. I think that's put there by us. It's By the way, it's fallen in yeah, recently. So that's one. And then there's a better beach in the other one, S Beach in Morto Bay. Uh, that's uh, just below Detot's Battery. They're going to land there as well. And uh, what what is the point of these? I've no well, idea. Hamilton also decided to place a, f- a force further up the western side of the peninsula between the Turkish forward positions and their local reserves with the intention of breaking their communications. Where was that at? Why Beach? Why which, Beach? Why? It's now but a thing. <laughs> what if? <laughs> I was going to say it's at the bottom of a very steep gully. Oh, we and have- we've gone down it and up it. And it's ludicrous. And uh, there's some great pictures of you uh, struggling through. I might put one of them up as well. It's one of our favourites, isn't it? The Hellis operations would be the responsibility of the 29th Division, who we mentioned earlier, augmented by the Plymouth Battalion of the uh, RND. So what's the timetable for success? Well, it was certainly ambitious. It involved the capture of uh, the dominating height of uh, Ajibaba behind the small village of Krithia by dusk. I'll step in there, yeah. On the first day. The first day? <laughs> Followed by a determined push next day in concert with the Anzac Corps to sweep the Turks from Kilid Bahia. And then as Matt McLaughlin, our... Uh, oh, sorry. McLaughlin <laughs> always says. And then t- beer, beer and sausages for, for, on the third day. You see. It's just, you know. But that wasn't all. To counter the uh, possible He's impacts... Not got, hang on. You're not going to say he's got more attacks? Yeah. To counter the possible impact of the Turkish Asiatic batteries firing into the back of the landing forces at S and B beaches, it was decided to land a French force at Kumkale, 
which would have the additional advantage of confusing the Turkish High Command as to whether the landing was real or not. Well, uh, that that's it though, isn't it? There's not there's nothing else. Nope, still not all. Hamilton also approved diversionary operations without any actual landings by the French off Basica Bay. Now, that's on the Asiatic coast round, uh, well, near near the island of Tenedos, yeah. And by the uh, Royal Naval Division in the Gulf of Saros to threaten the Bulea lines. Uh, that. <laughs> yes. Now, unfortunately, in putting forward these plans, Hamilton cast aside any slim opportunities that they were before him. Instead of forming a cohesive focus plan and sticking to it, he adopted, at least in part, almost every <laughs> option that lay open to him. Now, the rest of it I've got to read very carefully because I tried to create the effect of, uh, in, in my Gallipoli book, the effect of Hamilton's uh, plans in a single sentence. And I'll read it to you now. I think it's a work of genius. Uh, I don't know, really. It, it's, uh, it goes, it wasn't that he couldn't make up his mind. It was that he needlessly overcomplicated everything. Like a sentence bespattered with clauses, subclauses, and tangential... <laughs> I'd say that meandering syntax. His plan layered main landings, support landings, diversionary landings, and distracting demonstrations. And it's bollocks. What's he trying to do? We've we've already discussed what Hamilton's trying to do. What's he trying to do? Well, he's trying to confuse von Saunders to prevent him concentrating the Turkish forces against the landings. Ah, I could see a problem. Yeah, he totally failed to concentrate his own forces, which left them vulnerable to defeat in detail, thus mirroring the mistake of his masters in London. Who shouldn't have sent them any than there in the first place? They, they're splitting up their forces, failing to concentrate on the Western Front, so it's just the same bloody shite. It wasn't only that. The operations were also predicated on a belief that as, uh, as soon as the British got ashore, the Turks would cut and run. They're not regarded as a European enemy in the terminology of the time. This meant that Hamilton felt he could take risks that he wouldn't possibly think of against the German army. Them Germans, no. Uh, now, um, is he alone in this? Is he alone in the mistakes he's making? Do we have to say that Hamilton is just a complete bloody idiot? No, in fairness, uh, it was also the perceptions of many senior British army officers in 1915. Now... Even so, his divisional commanders are quite worried, aren't they? And, and you know, the one I like to use for this is the one that people think is an idiot. We did a whole podcast about how he, he was an arsehole, but he wasn't an idiot. And uh, that's Hunter Weston, Aylmer Hunter Weston. And you're going to read a quote from uh, Major General Aylmer Hunter Weston, and he's commanding the 29th Division. I'd like to point out he'd been a colonel just a year before, and now he's a major general. Here he goes. What you got to say for yourself? Aylmer. No loss would be too heavy and no risks too great if thereby success would be attained. But there is not in present circumstances a reasonable chance of success. The return of the expedition when it has gone so far will cause discontent, much talk and some laughter. <laughs> but it will not do irreparable harm to our cause, whereas to attempt a landing and fail to secure a passage through the Dardanelles would be a disaster to the Empire. The threat of invasion by the Allies is evidently having considerable effect on the Balkan states. It is therefore advisable to continue our preparations to train our troops for landing and to get our expedition properly equipped and organised for this difficult operation of war, so as to be ready to take advantage of any opportunity for successful action that may occur. But I would repeat, 
No action should be taken unless it has been carefully thought out in all its possibilities and details and unless there is a reasonable probability of success. And I also want to point out that he also, in another letter or somewhere, I can't find the quote just now, he said that... It was a letter to his wife. Yeah, uh, the, uh, in a letter he says uh, that, that if they did land, they'd get stuck halfway up uh, Hellas Peninsula like a cow up a train. <laughs> I always thought, like a cow up a train. Well, but the point is, I think Hunter Weston has got it smack on and he represented these views to higher authority. What happens? Well, unhappily for the men, if one thing was certain in the British Army of 1915, it was that when push came to shove, the um, can-do mentality would surface amongst senior officers. So there he is. He's got he's got perfectly reasoned arguments, and they are. That was a really sensible and intelligent piece of writing there. Uh, so what what happens? Well, he buckles to and he makes the best of a bad situation and muddles through. So Hunter Weston swallowed his doubts and he's determined to do his best to overcome the challenges. Well, I have to say, you remember his, his order of the day to the men? It is as, you may be faced by machine guns, shells, mines, but many of you will die. So he's still worrying, but he just gets on with it. Um, is this, uh, do they have a choice? I don't you see, the, the, the prevailing... I mean, if you object, you're out. I don't, I don't... It's very difficult to know... What, yeah, I mean, but, it, I'm, but we're it's, such, him. it's such a change. He, he does go from being probably uh, vehemently against it to be, becoming one of its, its biggest supporters simply because he thinks he has to do it in order to make it successful. It, and it's it can't his, be it's successful. It's his duty. It's du- his duty to make the best of it. Anyway, now the the hell is landings. Are they are they uh, are they uh, night landings like Anzac? No, they're going to be made by day. As Why? Hunter Weston was vehemently against the risk of landing at night in uncharted waters with possible strong currents, and feared the awful confusion that might result. And do you know what? Again, th- th- there's, there's, I'm, I'm ambivalent about this. We felt the current. You've been on V yep. Beach. You felt yep. the current as it swirls round from the the entrance to the Dardanelles, which is only well, it's there. It is the entrance. Yeah. I think it's a three or four knot current, isn't uh, it? Uh, four, yes, four at least. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know what that means, but it's fast and it can carry you away and all sorts. Um, Hamilton favours a, a, a night landing as at uh, Anzac, of course, uh, uh, but he, 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 he lets his subordinate have his way. Uh, he, he's got this... Hamilton has developed the position that uh, he, the executive responsibility lies with, uh, with the, the commander of the battle in this case. He didn't see himself... As he just set the task, it was Hunter Weston's job to achieve it and, and to make the key decisions, as in to land during the day. The apparent confidence of Hamilton and his senior staff utterly bemused some of their subordinates when they realised what was about to be attempted. Certainly, the results of many of the recent aerial and naval reconnaissance seems to have been simply ignored to the chagrin of those who had spent considerable time collecting that intelligence. And uh, to represent that, you're going to tell us what Lieutenant, or Lieutenant, Geoffrey Ryland HMS Ark Royal says. Yeah, uh, 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 he's a bad-tempered bugger, Ryland, but I, I like this quote. During the past few weeks, we, have, we were instructed to show on the chart of the peninsula all places where landing was deemed to be difficult or impossible, owing either to defensive measures by the Turks or the unsatisfactory character of the beach, including exposure to bad weather. 
This was completed and forwarded through the usual channels. We received the operation order for the landing and were amazed to find that the army had decided to land at nearly all the places which we had reported as being either difficult or impossible. So I was convinced that if the landing was successful, it would only be at the expense of very heavy casualties. Uh, pre- there you go. Um, now, we'd better have a quick look at what happens with Hamilton's plans, haven't we? We're not going to go into this in great detail. Um, what, so let, first, because it happens first, half past four in the morning or whatever it is, Anzac. What happens there? Well, the Anzac Corps had undergone the uh, bare minimum of training, yet it had been given a task under Hamilton's plans, which in cliched parlance would have daunted Napoleon's old guard. Always young guard. <laughs> they were to make a night landing on a hostile shore. Hard. Overcome an ill-defined Turkish opposition. Turks are difficult, but they didn't believe that. Take control of the high ground surrounding the landing beaches. Always difficult taking high ground. And then push across the peninsula to seize Mal Tepe, the cone-shaped hill. You have to say that or you're cursed. Otherwise I'd be cursed. Thereby severing Turkish communications on the peninsula. And that's just the first day. Yes. Uh, they haven't really mentioned tea and crumpets, but they, they probably should have done. Um, now, uh, then, now, then they've got to help the British. They've got to stop the Turkish reserves arriving. They've got to cooperate with the British advance on the uh, the big bastard of Khalid Bahir, which, by the way, you very rarely hear mentioned after the first day in anything by Hamilton and his acolytes. They always start talking about Achi Baba and Hill 971. Now, um, so that that's uh, that's what's going to happen. Uh, now, what have they considered somebody else who's involved in this? What? Do you mean what the Turks might do in response? So what? what is the Turkish plan? Well, the delaying tactics of their screens near the landing place, the possibility of ferocious counterattacks by their concentrated battalions, they were treated as irrelevances in Hamilton's scheme of things. It was a brilliant tripwire defence, tripping up the uh, enemy until the reserves could uh, arrive. So basically, they're only trying to slow down, find out what's happening, and then smash the buggers at night because they're frightened of the fleet's guns. Yep, that's... uh, Yeah, to emphasise the point you were alluding to earlier, the result was a disaster. Although just one Turkish company of the 28th Regiment faced them during the initial landings made on the 25th of April 1915. And and, and I want to make it clear, uh, in the initial stages, on the beaches, no machine guns... Uh, uh, we, we've talked about this before. That it, what you hear is often other machine guns on your side. The other thing is that uh, you know what's on your side. You're guessing at what's firing at you, and uh, it, it's always difficult. And we know the Turks' order of battle, don't we? Um, what do the Turks use so brilliantly at Anzac? Well, the natural advantages of the rugged terrain. Rugged's to, probably an understatement. Uh, to stymie the Australian troops advancing to contact across broken ground through um, tangled undergrowth. That yeah. really is an understatement. It really is, yeah. So what do they do? Well, they snipe the officers, the NCOs, and the men of good character so trying did... to push forward. I'd have been all right. I'd have been. I was just going to say that <laughs> you'd have been saying, I'll help the officer back to the beach. <laughs> now. Just to make matters worse, three more Turkish battalions arrived at about 0800 under Colonel Sefik Aker. Yeah, now, he's the, uh, he was our man of the match, uh, as far as we're concerned. Uh, he was a brilliant commander. Uh, and then, uh, so they then engaged the troops, stopped them, although they stopped themselves in many ways. Uh, and then what really puts the boot in? 
the 57th Regiment arrives under Colonel Mustafa Kamal at around about 10 a.m. Yeah, it's a dodgy figure, that. Anywhere between 10 and 12. Uh, but 10 will do for now. But uh, the Anzac advance had already been stopped on Second Ridge by Colonel Sinclair McLagan. Yeah. Ooh, did you pronounce that? McLagan. <laughs> I was tempted, yes. Who was commanding the covering 3rd Brigade, and he was charged with gaining the 3rd Ridge in so land. there's three ridges, Ridge 1, Ridge 2, and guess what the 3rd Ridge is called? Third Ridge, and that was uh, to cover the landing of the main force, ready to push on to seize Maltepe, cone-shaped hill. Uh, but he acted on his own responsibility, uh, and he didn't perform the role of a covering force at all. Yeah, and uh, and that means as the, the battalions land, they, 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 there's no defined front line on that third ridge so they just get thrown into action willy-nilly but to be fair i've been there a number of times now and i still don't know which one's third ridge when you're looking across it's at it it's very difficult it's very difficult well the, the second ridge is the, the the one that all the battles are on and is the famous one and uh the third ridge is that one that's a long way away ahead um how about the uh, general commander we haven't mentioned him before major general william bridges uh does he um does he perform well well, he's not able to wrest back control of the situation. He never is. Uh, units arriving on shore were fragmented as yeah. they were pushed sort of willy-nilly into the line. Willy-nilly is a good word, isn't it? Yeah. Now, at the end of the day, the situation was so bad that Hamilton's senior commanders seriously considered evacuation. Well, yeah, they did, and that 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 that's Birdwood. It's 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 everybody is worried, and they con- and they consult they consult with the naval commander in that area, Admiral Thursby, and uh, Hamilton decides to stick it out, and he writes a famous letter to uh, to Birdwood, and and you're going to read read it for us. There is nothing for it but to dig yourselves right in and stick it out. It would take at least two days to re-embark you, as Admiral Thursby will explain to you. Hunter Weston, despite his heavy losses, will be advancing tomorrow, which should divert pressure from you. Make a personal appeal to your men and godlies to make a supreme effort to hold their ground. P.S. You have got through the difficult business. Now you have only to dig, dig, dig until you are safe. Uh, Godley's the commander of the Australian and New Zealand division, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, such so uh, diggers, eh? Dig, yeah, dig, so they dig. dug in and they held their ground, but after the first few days, they could not and did not make any renewed effort to attain their real objectives of Maltepe and the Kilibahia Plateau, and they never got to Third Ridge. Yep, for the next three months, and until, um, we want to make this clear, until the August offensive, the Anzac Beachhead is, is uh, basically a holding camp for the Australian and New Zealand. It, it, they, they achieved nothing in those three months other than defend themselves from the Turks. Now, it, this, this whole thing is against military good sense, isn't it? it it's... But there is something we want to say, just in case people get us wrong. It was heroic, wasn't it? The, the Australian defence at Anzac and, and, and the establishment of that ridiculously small beachhead is, uh, is, is fascinating, it's heroic, it's, it shows incredible guts and determination. Uh, what importance does it have to the campaign as a whole? None. Yeah. Now, let's go to Hellas. So uh, it, it turns out that, uh, well... <laughs> This is where the campaign would be decided. Uh, but you know what? For there's a lot of sneering by some of the British at, at Anzac myths about that. You know, well, I mean, possibly I could be 
perceived as having just sneered at them there. I, I don't think I was. But the, the British definitely have their own bullshit, to use a highly technical term about the fighting, haven't they? Um, so what sort of things do they claim? Well, it's often claimed that the landings were somehow a military achievement of the highest order. No, they weren't. <laughs> they were. <laughs> they utterly bodge the landings of British. They make mistake after mistake at every level, every level of command, from second lieutenant to Hamilton. Uh, they uh, they miss any opportunities, and they're very brief if there were any. And they ludicrously exaggerate the scale of the opposition that they are facing. Who who are they facing? Just one battalion of Turks, which is roughly 1,000 or so men. They uh, faced some 12,000 British troops. Yet they succeeded in keeping them penned back to the beaches for most of the uh, first day. Yeah, just the 3rd, 26th, 3rd Battalion, 26th Regiment, uh, and a very few, a company or so of the 2nd Battalion, 26th Regiment. Uh, no machine guns. Uh, they've got uh, Nordenfelts, which are a type of uh, machine gun. Uh, they've got very little artillery support. They've got very few feasible landmines. Um, but what have they got? Good leadership, experienced, well-trained troops, and above all, they had their rifles. Yeah, and they were good on their rifles. There's a lot of crap. They were better on their rifles than the British were on theirs. Possibly not the 29th Division, but we'll come to that. And they had motivation. They're defending their homeland. So let's run through the disparate landings that uh, that Hamilton Hamilton insanely puts on. Uh, so what are they? Wire Beach, nothing opposed, but they did nothing and then were kicked off with their tails between the legs next day. So a complete waste of time. That was to divert the Turkish reserves and the Turkish reserves did for them. Yeah. X Beach, uh, that's a land that... This isn't really a beach. They land, it's opposed by 12 men and the Norden, and the Nordenfelt or two. They land okay. I think one of the Nordenfelts is at the Tower of London. I think we saw it last time it we is, weren't there. It is, yeah. Uh, they landed okay, but they did very little again and they panicked when counterattacked by a Turkish company, which was referred to as thousands. They basically do bugger all. S Beach, the landing faced just one platoon from the uh, uh, 2nd Battalion 26th Regiment, took the Tots battery and then they did... Nothing. Nothing. But that's what they've been told to do. They've been told to wait there. We, we always use this as an interesting exercise in command, don't we? Because they've been told to hold that line of hills until the others come up with them. But if they'd left and gone to help out at V Beach, then, oh, the Turks might have reoccupied the reserves as they came up. So it's interesting, but they did nothing. So what happened to the, the two main landings? Let's talk about them. W Beach. Uh, one company gave terrible grief to the First Lancashire Fusiliers. Just one company of Turks, then. Didn't have any machine guns. Concentrated rifle fire, but thin defences. And this is shown by the fact that we, we've, we've followed the tracks of uh, Brigadier Stuart Hare, who, uh, who's, who acts as a second lieutenant, climbs up the cliff on the left-hand side uh, and, uh, and, and turns a corner. And the beach is very soon afterwards taken. Uh, then they're held up by Turkish defences uh, further inland. And, and there's one very key vantage point now, where, which is where the Turks were, and held them back. Where's that? The Hills Memorial. Oh, you do know that. Which uh, is what, on, uh, how do you pronounce what it was called then? Guji Baba. Not bad effort. Better than I would have made. Now, the other main landing site, B Beach. Yeah. Now, the Turks did recognise the importance of this beach and it was seriously defended by the Turks with trenches and lines of barbed wire. Yeah, and uh, the the only method of landing then, it, 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 this is the first landing against modern weapons ever. 
Um, streams of uh, was just open rowing boats towed by steam launches and then rowing the rest of the way. And uh, 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 there's a, a, a bit of brilliant in- initiative by Commander Edward Unwin, who comes up with a plan for a merchantman to be converted into a sort of prototype landing craft. And this was a river Clyde. It had gangways down the side and a makeshift sort of bridge at the front made up of uh, barges. Um, uh, what happens? Well, I'd just like to make a point here. This is uh, daylight and a, uh, uh, a sh- landing craft is coming with holes cut in the side. Hmm. Ooh, I think Where do you think the Turkish might aim? At the holes and at the front. Now, the troops coming ashore were shot to pieces and achieved nothing for their outstanding heroism. So what's gone wrong? Well, you've mentioned it. That, that, that They hadn't thought it through, had they? They hadn't thought it through. No, I mean, the commendable imagination showed in the conception of the River Clyde scheme had not been matched by an equal attention in working out the nitty-gritty details which would be needed to be attended to if they were to execute the scheme successfully. Is this a bit like TFL with Crossrail? Yeah, absolutely. The Trojans of legend had no idea what lay within the gift left by the Greeks. Ooh, there's a big horsey on the beach. That indeed was the whole point. At V Beach, the Turks could plainly see the gangways. They knew what would happen when the ship ran aground, and they had more than enough time to train their rifles on the exit ports. The concept, risky at best, demanded a night landing. Yeah. At least a couple of hours before dawn, when the Turks would have been unable to discern what was going on, and wouldn't have known where to concentrate their fire. Yep, there's not enough Turks. There's just another company at uh, V Beach, another 250 of the battalion. Uh, That's all there are there. They couldn't cover all the options, and they wouldn't have been unable to have effective fire control. they just not thought it through, the British, and hundreds paid the price. Uh, So what went wrong overall at Helles? Well, the Hellas landings cannot be taken as a whole, as they were not interlinked operations. But each landing... Uh, ended up as a separate operation. No feasible communication of the time could have dealt with the problem. Turks were able to just about control the situation. And, and this business of grossly overestimating the number of Turkish forces, it dominates the whole day. They thought there was a division defending Hellas, not just a battalion. And they hear their own machine guns and they think it's the, it's the Turkish ones. Uh, that a sort of minor platoon or company attack like at X Beach is, is seen as being thousands, thousands of Turks coming at them. It, it's, uh, uh, it, 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 these fears really hamper the British, don't they? Just as much as the actual Turkish heroes of the 3rd 26th Regiment. Uh, and there's another thing. Although they overestimate the numbers, that under yeah, overestimate, they underestimated something else. What was that? Well, the skill and determination of Turks who were there. The outnumbered Turks have fought with supreme combination of skill and courage. Yeah, stick it to their positions. They hold on to to the point where surrender is is. Uh, <laughs> Well, it's the only feasible option, and they're not going to get that surrender accepted. They're going to get butchered. Uh, and that's the root cause of the British defeat. I want to make this quite clear, and you I know you do as well. We, we sometimes get away, we start talking about Hamilton's bad plans, about this, that, and the other. But the real reason they got beaten was by the Turks. The Turks were good soldiers, particularly in the defensive. And the, it may have been the first landing to be made in the face of modern weapons, but the British could hardly have done any worse, uh, or the Turks any better uh, thing. Now, the, what happened to, to the French then at Kumkali? We haven't really mentioned that. Uh, uh, that's to cover the arse, if you like, of the British. Is that a successful landing? In part it is. Uh, they land, the Turks counterattack, 
There's no point looking, it's not there. The Turks counterattack, and uh, what happens then? Well, the British call for help, so the French evacuate and are then put on the right-hand side so that... The position of honour, so they have Asiatic Annie firing at the backside and other artillery pieces for the, the whole of the campaign. Yeah, so that's another failure, another waste of resources. What about the diversions? How do they go, Gary? But well, Belair and Bazika Bay. So they, how do they go? Well, they don't really trouble the Turks at all. For all Hamil Hamilton's flailing attempts to conceal his intentions, the end results were unimpressive. Yeah, Liman von Sanders is worried about Belair, uh, even a bit worried about Bazika Bay, but uh, they don't really affect it. The, the divisions aren't... The, the, the diversions aren't seriously pursued. I mean, Freiburg, uh, Bird of Freiburg swims ashore. That's about all it is. At Belair and lights a few flares. It doesn't hold them up long. It doesn't hold them up long. What happens? Well, it causes a, a, a delay of a day or two in the dispatcher divisions to the real landing sites at Hedis and Anzac. Yeah. Once von Saunders had defined the uh, location and strength of the most serious threats, the diversion reactions ceased to weave their spell. First, the 5th and 7th Divisions were put on the march from Belair towards Anzac and Hellis. Then a couple of days later, the 11th Division was dispatched from Asia. And let's not forget, at the same time, 15th and 16th Divisions set sail from Constantinople. 12th Division starts to come march down from Smyrna. And... Uh, <laughs> But even by the end of April, the clock's running down for the, for the British. So let's summary it all up. Um, so what do we think of Hamilton's plans? Well, scattergun approach of making seven separate landings and two full-fledged diversionary operations meant that the Allies didn't have sufficient strength of troops landed at one location to force a real emergency response from the Turks. Yeah, attacked at almost every feasible landing site. The Turks were able to hold on for long enough with their tripwire defence for the local reserves of both Hellas and Anzac. Uh, and they held on while Liman von Sanders works out exactly what's happening and diverts his arriving reinforcements as appropriate. Or Kemal Ataturk does it. Okay, Mustafa Kemal does it as well. Yeah, it, It's just stupid. Well... His, Hamilton's plans relied heavily on the Turks not putting up any serious opposition to the naval bombardment. But the battleships were too far off the coast to achieve the necessary accuracy. And even when closer, their flat trajectory gunfire made it almost impossible to hit the Turkish trenches lining the brow of the amphitheatre. Ah, that's what beaches are, we've told that. Or tucked away on the reverse straps. What you need... Oh, how it says. Yeah, you need up and down. Up and fire. down. At both Anzac and Hellas, it's not a matter of doubting the courage of individual soldiers. Absolutely not. But more of accepting an endemic military incompetence, lethally combined with inexperienced troops who had had no experience of modern warfare. You know, Gary, and one thing is to remember, it was only 1915. The war had only just started, only, uh, well, mass repeat, eight months before, uh, and few... Few of them knew what they were doing when the guns started firing. So we are down on Hamilton. Uh, great, great. He had great experience. He'd had a wonderful career. But the wheels are coming off at Gallipoli, aren't they? They are. Um, Do we blame him entirely? No, I'm not sure there are many others that spring to mind that would have done any better. Absolutely. And one reason for that is it was an impossible task. And also it detracted from the... Uh, uh, the main theatre of the war, which was the Western Front. Absolutely. All right, well, we'll be having a look at Hamilton's later career at Gallipoli in a later episode. Later, later, later. Uh, uh, thank you for joining me for this podcast, Gary. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Cheers.
Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. And we'd be jolly grateful. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?